Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And today, we're going to be uh, examining one of the treasures of our tradition, looking at the Church's tradition regarding Ash Wednesday and the laws for the Lenten fasting and abstinence and how they've uh, changed and evolved over the years. Also, in the final segment, most likely, I'd like to spend a little time talking about devotion to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, February, actually, I'd, I'd intended to do it in February, because February is especially, that whole month is devoted to the passion of our Lord. But of course, Lent is also a time to practice devotion to our Lord's passion, so uh, we're going to be talking about that as well. But to begin with, as per usual, in the extraordinary form of the Mass and uh, the old calendar, we began this week with uh, the final Sunday of Shrovetide, Queen Quagesima Sunday, uh, the final Sunday before Lent, which of course begins today. And uh, the readings for uh, this Sunday help us to understand the season of Lent. So we'll start with the epistle, which is taken from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. That's St. Paul's famous discourse on the virtue of charity. If in speaking I use human tongues and angelic as well, but do not have love, I am nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have all the faith necessary to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything to feed the poor and hand over my body to be burned, but do not have love, I achieve nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. It does not have an inflated opinion of itself. It is not filled with its own importance. Love is never rude. It does not seek its own advantage. It is not prone to anger, neither does it brood over setbacks. Love does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Prophecies will eventually cease. Tongues will become silent and knowledge will pass away. For our knowledge is partial and our prophesying is partial. But when we encounter what is perfect, that which is imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. However, when I became a man, I put all childish ways aside. At the present time, we see indistinctly as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. My knowledge is only partial now. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now there remain faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. I guess that follows, uh, considering that in his first epistle, St. John tells us that God is love and that he has communicated his love to us. And in his gospel, uh, gospel of John, Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. Now, before we continue, I want to say a word about love and a word about translations of that word. Uh, in New Testament Greek, there are some eight distinct words for love, covering all the various shades of meaning that that word can imply. 
Now, according to the footnotes of the New Catholic Bible uh, for 1 Corinthians 13, the Greek term translated love means, quote, a selfless concern for the welfare of others, regardless of whether they are lovable or not. It arises from a willingness to love in obedience to the command of God and a desire to follow Christ's love manifested on the cross. Now, I would submit to you that the Greek word that carries this definition might be better translated uh, into English as charity. Um, But even though every single Catholic version of the Bible that I consulted uh, from the very formal Revised Standard Version Catholic edition to the more dynamic New American Bible to the New Catholic Bible that I typically read from, all of them translate that Greek word in 1 Corinthians as love. The singular exception is the traditional Dewey Reims translation, which is charity. And why? Well, because the Dewey is... Uh, for all intents and purposes, a word-for-word English translation of St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And the Vulgate, uh, Jerome chose the word caritas, which is charity. And, you know, whenever questions like this arise, the the Vulgate Latin uh, is always my tiebreaker. Uh, And for a number of reasons, not the least of which being that the Council of Trent ordained and declared, quote, the old Latin Vulgate in use for so many hundreds Uh, so many hundred years has been approved by the church to be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as authentic, and that no one may dare to presume under any pretext whatsoever to reject it. Now, that was the 16th century. But in the 20th century, um, Pope Pius XII's encyclical on the promotion of biblical studies, uh, Divino Aflante Spiritu, right? Um... He said um, that the Vulgate, quote, interpreted in the sense in which the church has always understood it, is, quote, free from any error whatsoever in matters of faith and morals, so that, as the church herself testifies and affirms, it may be quoted safely and without fear of error in disputations, in lectures, and in preaching. Now, you will search until your eyes bleed before you find any such endorsement of any other translation of the Holy Bible in any language. Now, I suspect that the reason for this extraordinary endorsement is that St. Jerome was uh, both a a scholar of Latin, in fact, one of the four great Latin doctors of the church, but also that his native language was Koine Greek, uh, the Greek of the New Testament. So this made Jerome especially qualified to translate from Greek into Latin. Now, um, the Greek word for love, uh, or the Latin word for love, rather, as we think of it, is amo. Uh, Amote, as I love you in Latin. That's the kind of love that I have for my wife. But the kind of love that means to will the good of another is caritas, or charity. Uh, And so, you know, uh, in St. Paul's famous litany of charity, love is patient, love is kind, etc., the apostle is teaching the Corinthians, uh, as well as you and me, the necessity, the qualities, and the advantages of charity, right? First, the necessity, because... um, All natural and supernatural gifts, all good works, all virtues and sacrifices, even martyrdom itself cannot save us if we do not have charity. Only charity can make us and our good works pleasing to God. 
So no matter what severe penance you do this Lent, uh, how strictly you observe the laws of fasting and abstinence and otherwise mortify yourself, no matter how many prayers you say or how many alms you give, without love, without charity, it will not avail you unto salvation. And once again, caritas, charity, also known as brotherly love or love of neighbor, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. It's an act of the will, to will the good of the other. So first and foremost, charity is a necessity. Uh, number two, the qualities of charity that Paul expounds here, it's, it's uh, goodwill, okay? Goodwill without envy or, or suspicion or stubbornness or, or, or malice and, and pure intention without selfishness or, or ambition or immodesty or injustice, um, a persevering patience, okay? patience without being uh, hasty, okay? uh, uh, reconciling yourselves to things happening in God's time and according to his good pleasure, which is humble submission to God. Because uh, to those who possess true charity, God is everything. And then finally, the advantages of charity in that it gives our good works all of their, their value. Because as St. Paul says, uh, charity never fails. Never fails. What does that mean? Uh, well, look at the last uh, line in verse 13. And now, that is in this present life, now there remain faith, <clears throat> hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity is the greatest of the theological virtues simply because the others will come to an end. Uh, after the judgment, faith gives way to knowledge. We, we will see God as he is, and, and hope will also cease because in the end, our hopes will either be fulfilled in heaven or we will have to abandon them in hell. So, in other words, charity never fails means charity lasts forever. And that's why it's the greatest of, of the theological virtues. St. Augustine says, Faith lays the foundation of the house, and hope builds up the walls, but charity covers and completes it. God, as St. John says, is love. And it's God who pours into our hearts the spirit of charity. And this is why we must always endeavor to preserve charity by remaining in the state of grace. It's the only way that our works may be pleasing to God and also beneficial to us. So as we approach uh, Lent, um, we, you know, most of us spend our time asking what we're going to give up as our Lenten sacrifice. You know, the, the priest who offers the extraordinary form at my parish uh, last Sunday gave us this suggestion for the season of Lent. He says, if you're wondering what to, what to give up for Lent, what's going to be spiritually efficacious for you, he said, contemplate this passage from 1 Corinthians by replacing the word charity or love with your name. So, for example, if your name is Bob, ask yourself if you can really say, Bob is patient, Bob is kind, Bob is not envious, and so on. And, you know, if you fall short of that description, Bob, <laughs> and who doesn't, then perhaps you will see more clearly what it is that you need help with this Lent in order to fulfill Christ's new commandment of love in your own life. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with more right after these messages. Stay with us. No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Okay, welcome back. We're going through the readings for Quinquagesima Sunday, the Sunday just passed, uh, final one before Lent, which begins today. And the Gospel for Quinquagesima Sunday was taken from Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. At that time, Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are now going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have scourged him, they will put him to death, and on the third day he will arise again. But they understood nothing of this. Its meaning remained obscure to them, and they failed to comprehend what he was telling them. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going past, he inquired what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He shouted, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. The people in front rebuked him and ordered him to be silent, but he only shouted all the louder, son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. And when he had come near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He answered, Lord, let me receive my sight. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And all the people who witnessed this also gave praise to God. Uh, Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, there are three uh, main aspects to this Gospel. Our Lord's prediction of his passion, the Apostles' failure to understand, and the cure of the blind man, which is not uh, coincidental. Okay, this is the first, not the first time that our Lord has alluded to his passion. I think it's the third time in Luke's gospel, like it's six times altogether, that he talks about his coming passion in, in the gospels. Um, and, uh, of course, the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah portray him not only as the son of David, right, the conquering hero, but also as the Son of Man, the suffering servant. So first we ask why our Savior predicted his sufferings uh, uh, so often to the apostles. And again, it's, it's a threefold answer. Number one, to show that he already knew about them. He knew he was going to, to suffer, and that indicates his omniscience. And, and remember, the, the apostles were simple men. They weren't scripture scholars, okay? Number two, he desired to suffer, We know he didn't have to suffer the way he did in order to save us, but he suffered willingly because it was fitting, right? Considering how greatly we had, uh, uh, have offended God by our sins, okay, which he takes upon himself. And then uh, lastly, in order that the apostles wouldn't be scandalized by his humiliation, you know, or worse, think that he had deceived them, uh, that, that he really wasn't who he claimed to be. So by indicating that he knew what was coming and that he entered into it of his own free will, he was guaranteeing that in retrospect, okay, by remembering their, his words, they would not be scandalized, but on the contrary, be confirmed in their belief in him as the Son of God and the Redeemer of the world. Now I say in retrospect because the gospel explicitly says that the apostles didn't understand what he was predicting in regard to his sufferings. So why not? Why didn't they understand? Well, first and foremost, they simply couldn't reconcile 
uh, uh, these predictions with their own expectations of the, this glorious earthly kingdom. Okay? <clears throat> they expected, all the Jews expected, uh, you know, a conquering hero, that the Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom. And we shouldn't be too quick to judge them. You know, uh, you and I both know from experience that uh, no matter how plainly you present the truths of the faith to, to an unbeliever or, you know, to somebody who isn't familiar with it, the, the only way they can overcome their own worldly perspective, their own opinions, is through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, next is the cure of the blind man. And what do we learn from that? What, why is that here? Well, Jesus is showing, or the, the, the Luke is showing us by uh, attaching these two episodes <clears throat> about the, the misfortune, the unspeakable misfortune of blindness of heart. Uh, in other words, a, a state in which human beings do not know the Lord, that they don't know the Holy Trinity, and therefore they can't see the way of, of divine life or, or recognize the, the things in this life that stand in the way, right? Stand in the way of their salvation, and therefore they grope around in, in, in darkness and ignorance and, and sin. So the blind man in the gospel represents... Uh, uh, you know, shows us how salvation from this awful condition comes through Jesus Christ, comes through his healing and, and enlightening us through his grace. The blind man's also a model for a number of things, right? When we, we look at the way he interacted with our Lord. Number one, we see the zeal with which we should seek our Lord. And number two, the perseverance with which we should call upon him for deliverance. Number three, how we should disregard the bad example and persecution and ridicule of the world. And finally, how fervently we should thank God, how faithfully we should follow him after he has opened the eyes of our soul and freed us by his grace from the spiritual blindness of sin. Okay, Gratitude, that's no nonsense. So, Quinquagesima is the final Sunday of Shrovetide, right, which began with Septuagesima Sunday. Shrovetide, it's called in English because, Old English, uh, because Shrove was the past tense uh, in Old English of the word shrive. And to be shriven is to be absolved of your sins, right? It's about going to confession. So the um, uh, sacramental confession was traditionally considered a, a Lenten preparation, most people wait until the very end of Lent to go to confession. Uh, the medievals would, you know, go before Lent to prepare themselves uh, for the season of penance. Uh, also, um, uh, the consumption of, of meat and meat products before Lent gave rise to the um, observance of what's called Shrove Tuesday or Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday in French. Um, and it became a festive occasion of um, you know, in England they would make pancakes and so forth, and, and use up all the butter and milk and and uh, uh, meat and so forth in the house, uh, and it became, like you say, a, a festive occasion with people feasting on that day, because they kind of wait until the the end of Shrovetide to get all the uh, meat and meat byproducts out of the house. Um, uh, yeah, because uh, fast and abstinence, of course, was a uh, kind of a more serious business um, in the pre-Vatican II church, and especially in the medieval church. Okay, So before we get into traditions of Lent, uh, also I just wanted to mention, 
and you may be listening to this. I don't know when you're listening to this. Uh, it might be after Ash Wednesday. Uh, the live broadcast is happening now. But I just wanted to say that if you miss going to Mass on Ash Wednesday, if you can't go uh, for some reason, you can't assist at Mass, you can't go and get your ashes, um, recognize it's not a holy day of obligation, okay? It's, it's a very popular. Lots of people go and get their ashes, and they don't necessarily stay for the Mass, but they go get their ashes on Ash Wednesday. But it isn't obligatory, okay? Uh, and I also, because it's one of the most frequented Masses of the year, I'd like to look at the readings for Ash Wednesday from the Extraordinary Form of the Mass. I want to do that today as also. Starting with the Epistle uh, for Ash Wednesday in the, the ordinary or Extraordinary Form, which is from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. <clears throat> Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn back to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger rich in kindness, and always prepared to relent from punishing. Perhaps he will turn back and relent and leave a blessing behind him, cereal offerings and libations to be presented to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, proclaim a fast, announce a solemn assembly, gather the people together, summon the community, assemble the elders, gather the children, even infants at the breast, Call forth the bridegroom from his bedroom and the bride from her wedding chamber. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, stand weeping between the temple porch and the altar as they say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not allow your heritage to be mocked and subjected to the contempt of the nations. Why should the peoples say, Where is their God? Thereupon the Lord was stirred to feel concern for his land, and he took pity on his people. In response to their request, the Lord said to his people, I will send you grain and wine and oil, and you will have all you need. Never again will I expose you to the contempt of the nations. See, in these words, uh, the prophet Joel calls upon the Israelites to be converted. He reminds them of the great mercy of God and exhorts them to join with their fasting and alms true repentance for their sins. Uh, they should all, without exception, do penance and implore the mercy of God from, from nursing babies to the ancients, uh, from the little ones to the priests at the altar. Then God would forgive them, deliver them from their enemies, and bring peace and happiness upon them. Such is the spirit of the season of Lent. And now for the gospel for Ash Wednesday out of Matthew 6, verses 16 through 21. These are our Lord's own directions for fasting. Whenever you fast, do not assume a gloomy expression like the hypocrites who contort their faces so that others may realize that they are fasting. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so the fact that you are fasting will not be obvious to others, but only to your Father who is hidden." And your Father, who sees everything that is done in secret, will reward you. Oh, I got a frog in my throat. Do not store up treasures. That's not part of the scripture. That was just me. Uh, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, where they will be destroyed by moth and rust, and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up treasure for yourselves in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, this teaching on how to fast uh, and why is it's quite clear. It comes directly from the lips of our Lord. Fasting is not an occasion to draw attention to yourself, but something between you and God, because he knows your sins, right? And uh, it's also about not allowing the world and its pleasures and concerns get in the way of that. Okay, so Ash Wednesday. So-called because on this day the Catholic Church blesses ashes and the minister traces them on the foreheads of the faithful, saying, Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. These are words taken from Genesis 3.19, and uh, we will get into the meaning of that and the meaning of the ashes and why they're blessed and all the rest of it when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful. Hopefully I'll get my coughing out of my system before the next segment. I'll see you on the other side. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about Ash Wednesday, talking about um, the blessing of the ashes, the distribution distribution of the ashes, the traditional formula. Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. Or it's from Genesis 3.19. Naturally, in the Novus Ordo, there are optional formulas, but this is the traditional one. And the ashes are made by burning the blessed palms from the previous year's Palm Sunday Mass. So the ashes are blessed, sprinkled with holy water, and then distributed on the foreheads of the faithful. So why are the ashes blessed if they're made from blessed palms? Well, <clears throat> when the, the palms are sacramental. They're, they're blessed, but once they've been burned, and they're no longer palms but ashes, they lose their blessing, right? That's, that's one of the things. That's, that's the way to dispose of one of the ways to dispose of a blessed object is to burn it because it's no longer blessed. <clears throat> so the blessing that takes place at the Mass on Ash Wednesday makes the ashes into a sacramental so that all of those who receive them with a contrite heart can be preserved in soul and body. Uh, and also the, uh, through the distribution of the ashes that God will grant us contrition and pardon our sins. And number three, that he may grant the faithful uh, all that they humbly ask for, uh, particularly in this season, the grace to do penance and to receive the reward that is promised to those who are truly penitent. I'm going back to the uh, reading from Joel. Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent and is a day of fasting and abstinence. Now, <clears throat> fasting means only taking one full meal in the day, okay? And abstinence is to refrain from eating meat. Now, currently, the only other prescribed day of fasting and abstinence is Good Friday, although Catholics are obliged to abstain, uh, to abstain from meat on all the Fridays of Lent. Now, under the Old Covenant, right back in the Old Testament, there was, originally there was only one fasting day. It was the Day of Atonement. But the Jews fasted by command of God. So you see Moses fasting for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. You see Elijah fasting in the desert. And then to the New Testament, Jesus fasted for 40 days and also commanded his apostles to fast and told them how to behave while they were fasting, which we just read in the gospel. 
Now, according to Pope St. Leo the Great, the Catholic Church has enjoined fasting upon the faithful uh, since the time of the Apostles. And the Church has instituted fasting uh, in the season of Lent, the season before Easter, for five main reasons, all right? To imitate Christ, who fasted in the desert, that's number one. Uh, to participate in his uh, merits and, and passion. For, uh, you know, as Christ could only be glorified through his sufferings, in order to belong to him, we have to follow his example. Three, to subject our flesh to the Spirit, which is, by the way, that's what St. Paul was on about in 1 Corinthians. Charity is an act of the will. And uh, four, to preser- uh, prepare ourselves for Easter and the worthy reception of communion. Remember, it's a precept of the church that you must receive communion at least once a year, and that during the Easter time. So this is the preparation for that. Uh, obviously, the church would like you to receive much more regularly than that, so long as you're in a state of grace. But you are, you know, uh, obliged at least once a year. And uh, and then finally, to offer God some satisfaction for our sins. As St. Leo said, um, to atone for the sins of a whole year by the short fast of a tenth part of the year. Now, <laughs> The current laws of fasting and absence is to abstain from meat on the Fridays of Lent uh, and to fast and abstain on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and, and that's it. Now, in the old days, you know, pre-Vatican II, uh, Catholics used to fast all the days of Lent, with the exception of Sundays. <clears throat> and in the Middle Ages, they also abstained as well as fasted during Lent. Uh, hence the, the, uh, the pre-Lenten party, we talked about Shrove Thursday, and, uh, and uh, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. Uh, in Venice, in Italy, it's called Carnival, Carnival, right? Which we think of as a party, but Carnival is actually from the Latin carne and volley, which literally means goodbye meat, <laughs> okay? Because they were preparing to, to abstain <clears throat> for this entire season of Lent. All right, and when the medievals abstained, uh, they didn't just abstain from flesh meat, right? So beef and pork and, and all, also poultry, right, fish, uh, birds and fowl, but also from things that are produced from the flesh. So they also abstain from butter and eggs and, and cheese. <clears throat> Some Christians even um, abstain from wine and fish, okay, which, which means, you know, pretty much these went vegan <clears throat> for 40 days. Uh, thankfully, they were allowed to drink beer, which explains how my ancestors survived, uh, and also gave rise to uh, some medieval religious orders observing what's called the beer fast, where you go uh, 40 days on beer alone, which I have never tried, but uh, I'm willing. <laughs> uh, also, in, in medieval times, they fasted for the whole day. They, they would only eat, you know, we have uh, two collations, right, two small meals that don't add up to a whole meal, right, because you're only supposed to eat one whole meal a day. But they wouldn't eat at all until after Vespers, okay, which is the 6 o'clock hour of uh, the Divine Office, evening prayers. Now, obviously, the, uh, the strictures of Lent have been relaxed over the years, which has given rise to the custom of giving something up for Lent, right? This grew out of that desire to retain that spirit of sacrifice since people were no longer fasting um, all, all the 40 days. Now, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, after Septuagesima Sunday, some of the early Christians started their fast right then, 70 days before Easter. <clears throat> and so you can see how this, uh, the pre-Lenten season of Shrovetide, which is still observed in the extraordinary form, is a helpful preparation. If you're going to abstain from meat and dairy as well as fast 
for 40 days, okay? Then, then fasting to get ready for that is going to be a help. Now, I've never kept the strict ancient fast. I mean, I have fasted all 40 days of Lent before, uh, but under the church's current rules of fasting. And, and this year, I began my fast at the start of Shrovetide, on the, the Monday after Septuagesima Sunday. So I've already been fasting for, I don't know, two and a half weeks or so. Um, and, that, and it does, I can tell you, it makes Ash Wednesday less daunting, okay? Uh, and, of course, these days we have that custom of giving something up for Lent. So although we don't fast the whole time, we're still making some daily sacrifice or mortification. And I think you can agree we have it pretty easy uh, by comparison, but the point is still the same. To, to deny ourselves that which is good in order to better be able to deny that which is forbidden. Okay. Now, what precisely is, is the season of Lent? Well, <clears throat> it is the liturgical season that begins on Ash Wednesday and uh, Wednesday after Quinquagesima Sunday and, and is 46 days before Easter. Now, I, I mentioned before we say Lent is 40 days, but um, we don't count the six Sundays that occur during Lent. And, of course, no fasting is prescribed by the church anywhere in the church for Sundays, right? Uh, and the final two weeks of Lent are called Passion Week and Holy Week, respectively, because it's then that the church's liturgy follows Christ closely through the last stages of his mortal life. And then during the season of Lent, the Holy Mass sets before us the public life of our Lord, including his fasting and his passion and his death. So in keeping with the, the penitential spirit of the season, the church traditionally forbade the celebration of marriage during Lent, okay? Until, not until after, from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. Uh, and, and once again, uh, in keeping with the spirit of Lent, Catholics were traditionally expected to abstain from worldly amusements, right? Going to shows and, and, and feasts and so on, so that they could devote more time to prayer and penance and religious exercises. Now, today, of course, we're only uh, required to abstain on Ash Wednesday and the Fridays of Lent and to fast only on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. But you don't have to go back to medieval times to find out that Catholics used to fast and abstain on many more days of the year than just in Lent. All you have to do is go back before Vatican II. You know, and the rules of fasting haven't changed all that much, right? Like I say, it's one full meal is allowed, uh, and you can take food other food according to local custom in the United States, two small meals or not uh, repasts or collations, they're called, uh, which both together shouldn't amount to a full meal. And uh, traditionally on fast days that are not days of abstinence, at that full meal you can eat meat or fish um, <clears throat> or, you know, meat byproducts and so on. Now, obviously today uh, the only two fasts in the church are also days of abstinence as well, so this is no longer a concern unless you voluntarily uh, follow um, what one priest I know used to call uh, the honors program. Okay? So during a fast uh, between eating between meals, you know, snacking is obviously forbidden, but it's always been permissible to imbibe in non-nourishing liquids. So you can have water, you can have uh, wine, beer, uh, tea and coffee, soda pop, that kind of thing. Uh, and these days, nourishing drinks are also allowed, so broth and milk and so forth. Um, traditionally, all Catholics between the age of 21 and 59 were obliged to fast. Now it's uh, 18 until the completion of the 59th year, so 60 year. And, um, and I think that they, they began fasting at these different ages uh, because young people aren't done growing yet, and they need more than one meal a day. And those who are over 60 may be infirm, or they may need to eat more regularly or, or uh, 
have more than one meal. You know, and, and of course, there have always been those who are dispensed from fasting, you know, and especially in the days when the laws were more strict. So um, you also have pastors uh, given the power to dispense from fast and abstinence in certain cases, individuals, even entire families. Um, and, and those dispensed from fasting, though, should still abstain unless they've been dispensed from that also. But uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about those who are, who are uh, in weak health, okay, people who are sick or convalescing, nursing mothers, uh, the very poor, those who are engaged in, in hard physical labor of one kind or another. And that's not just physical laborers, okay, but, uh, you know, teachers and nurses and, and first responders, officers of the law, right? In other words, people who need to keep their strength up and upon whom others rely, for important services, whether it's a nursing mother or, or a firefighter. Um, now, a day of abstinence, we are not allowed the use of flesh meat, and that is understood as the flesh of warm-blooded animals as well as birds and fowl. So what that also means is that fish, shellfish, uh, snails, frogs, alligators, <laughs> all those can be taken on the abstinence days as well as milk and butter and cheese and eggs, which are allowed all through Lent. Okay, when we come back, going to uh, finish up with Lent and talk about devotion to the passion of our Lord uh, during this uh, penitential season so that we can make the most out of Lent. Okay, so all that and more when we return. Lots more no nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us and we will be right back after these messages. Okay, welcome back. Final round. No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Glad to have you along with us. Been talking about fasting and abstinence. And these, of course, are associated in the Catholic mind of today with the season of Lent. But once upon a time, um, before Vatican II, most Catholics also fasted on what are called the Ember Days. All right, Ember Days. There were three Ember Days per season. And the Ember Days were the uh, uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday following the first Sunday of Lent. The Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after Pentecost Sunday. Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after September 14th. And the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after December 15th. So 12 Ember Days throughout the years where we were called upon to fast. They also fasted all the days of Lent except Sunday and up to noon on Holy Saturday. And then also they would fast on the vigils of Pentecost. Feast of the Assumption, the Vigil of All Saints Day, and Christmas, which means, which means uh, uh, <clears throat> the vigils of, of All Saints and Christmas. That means that Halloween and Christmas Eve used to be fast days. Now, uh, days of abstinence were all the Fridays of the year, except holy days, of course. You know, for example, if, if, if Christmas falls on a Friday, you're not going to abstain just, just because it's, you know, just because it's Friday, because you know, the fact that it's Christmas uh, takes precedence. And then they would also uh, abstain on not just the Fridays of Lent, but also the Wednesdays of Lent. And uh, uh, let's see, also, of course, the Ember Days and the Vigils. So um, fasting and abstinence on those days. So in the days before the introduction of the New Order of the Mass and and the, the new sacraments and disciplines and so forth, there were in all 53 fast days and 73 days of abstinence every year. 
Today we have two fast days, right? Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and seven days of abstinence, which are Ash Wednesday and the Fridays of Lent. Now, it is the custom, uh, and in England it's still, uh, for example, it's still obligatory to abstain on all the Fridays of the year. Uh, But typically, I mean, here in the United States, we are not strictly obliged to abstain all the Fridays of the year, just, just in Lent. But on the Fridays outside of Lent, if you're not going to abstain, you should do some other kind of penitential act. Now, my family, you know, as for me and my family, we just abstain from meat every Friday because it's, you know, it's traditional and, uh, and because it's a good habit, all right? And, and it's easier than trying to come up with some alternative. <clears throat> also, since we are no longer obliged uh, to fast all the days of Lent, it's customary to choose some Lenten sacrifice. Now, a word about that. Whatever that is should really be renewable, right? So whether you're giving up chocolates or coffee or embracing some extra daily devotions or whatever, you are very likely to fall at some point. And, and that is a part of Lent as well. Okay? I mean, you think about our Lord's passion. that He fell three times. You know, the church expects you <laughs> to fall. That's why you need, um, you know, to, have, to make some sacrifice that you can just pick back up. You know, this is a whole season devoted to recognizing the fact that we're not perfect. Okay, and that we are need uh, in need of God's grace, and that we all can use a good, you know, uh, old-fashioned dose of humility. Without me, our Lord says in John fifteen five, you can do nothing. <clears throat> and the fact that we fail in our Lenten obligations sometimes is uh, just a reminder of the fact that without Him, we can do nothing. Obviously, you're also not obliged to the honors program, but only that which is required by the Church. I fast throughout uh, the entirety of Lent, all right, except for the Sundays. That's just, I mean, but that's just my personal spirituality, you know. Um, just remember the old adage that uh, no soul can be lost by the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. So do what the Church teaches. Fast and abstain on the days appointed. Pray, do penance, give alms, and may God grant you a blessed and fruitful Lent. Okay. Uh, Speaking of Lenten devotions, I wanted to talk for just a minute about devotion to the Passion of Our Lord. Uh, Shrove Tuesday, which yesterday, is also the Feast of the Holy Face. Uh, Devotion to the Holy Face began um, really with, drumroll please, Bernard of Clairvaux, of course. Uh, He is the composer of the great hymn, Jesus, the Very Thought of Thee. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast but sweeter by far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. And Bernard was an influence on St. Gertrude the Great. Uh, St. Gertrude um, saw visions of Christ, and he spoke to her, made promises regarding those who are devoted to the holy face. Then um, that was expanded upon. In the 19th century, our Lord appeared to Sister uh, Marie of St. Peter and uh, gave her promises for those who are devoted to the Holy Face, and that's the devotion of the Holy Face of Jesus of the Vale of Veronica. And in the 20th century, another one grew up. I did a whole show on this last year. You can go through the archives, you know, and there's a whole big explication about the Holy Face devotion. Uh, But, uh, and that's devotion, the 20th century's devotion to the the Holy Face of Jesus on the Shroud of Turin. And there was a medal struck. You can see I'm wearing one right now around my neck. I got that. uh, It's an image of the 
the, sh the face from the Shroud of Turin. Um, and that's kind of the, uh, uh, the beginning of this um, devotion to our Lord's Passion throughout Lent. And there's two really main devotions to our Lord's Passion. One is um, the Stations of the Cross, and the other is the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary. You know, uh, uh, it's customary for Catholics to say five decades of the Rosary every day. And most people do the joyful on Mondays and Thursdays. They do the glorious on Wednesdays and Saturdays and Sundays. And then according to my prayer book uh, from Catholic Book Publishing Company, which was uh, revised in the year 2005, and I say this just, in other words, it's, it's a contemporary prayer book and not some traditional or even pre-Vatican II one. It says that the sorrowful mysteries are to be said on Tuesdays and Fridays throughout the year, but daily from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. So all of Lent. Now, you're not obliged to do this, but it is a good Lenten tradition, and the Sorrowful Mysteries are uh, 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 a meditation on the Passion that is very suitable for the Lenten devotion. And the others, as I mentioned, is the Stations of the Cross. Most parishes do the Stations on Fridays during Lent, um, and that's a great thing to do. But you can do them any day or, or every day, if you like. Um, to gain the indulgence attached, you have to actually go to the church and proceed from station to station. And they're numbered with a Roman numeral and, and a little wooden cross. And, and that little cross at each station is a sacramental. And the indulgence only requires going from station to station and then meditating for a few moments on you know, the scene that it depicts, right? Uh, Jesus is condemned to death. Jesus bears his cross, so on. And there's no specific prayers that need to be said. But uh, also, uh, you know, there are many methods. Method of St. Alphonsus Liguori is very popular. There's different ones. And if you're, you know, if it's Lent and it's a, a Friday of Lent, oftentimes if the priest is leading it and he's got acolytes and incense and, and they're carrying the processional cross, uh, the people just stay in their pews. Uh, the fact that the priest and, and the acolytes are going from station to station is, is sufficient. Now, making the stations of the cross actually goes all the way back to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Tradition tells us that, that after her divine son ascended into heaven, she would often retrace his steps on the Via Dolorosa. And that practice was discovered by St. Francis of Assisi when he visited the Holy Land, and then he brought that back to, to Christendom, back to Europe. And it was the Franciscans who first introduced the Stations of the Cross into church buildings. So you can see the connection between Mary actually um, retracing our Lord's steps with the, the practice of going from station to station in the church. <clears throat> but this, this devotion itself, right, just the, the, those scenes uh, depicted in the Stations of the Cross is a suitable meditation on our Lord's Passion anywhere and anytime, whether you can get to the church or not, because it's a spiritual accompanying of Jesus on his sorrowful journey from the house of Pilate to Calvary while we meditate on his sufferings and death. You know, I put together a short video, Way of the Cross, and uh, you can access through the, um, the Virgin Most Powerful Radio I, uh, smartphone app. Right? You just go to prayers, and, you, and you'll find it there. And um, it's just brief. It's, you know, maybe 10, 12 minutes long with a little meditation for each station. Um, when Our Lady of America appeared here in the 1950s, she expressed her desire for Catholics in this country to be devoted to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. And what does that mean? That, that is to, to recognize 
that the kingdom of God is within us when we are in a state of grace. Understand that, that, you know, that, that the Spirit of God dwells in us as a temple, as, as the Scripture says. So where do you begin to be devoted to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity? Right? This is a, a matter of contemplation, and it seems like a lofty uh, goal for some people. Well, this is what brought this to uh, my attention this connection was, you know, I read through the, the Imitation of Christ every year, uh, and in uh, it's book two, um, chapter one of book two, it says, if you are unable to contemplate the Godhead, then let your thoughts dwell on the passion of Christ, finding in those sacred wounds a home. If you fly to the wound in Christ's side, you will find comfort in all your troubles. You will not care then if others despise you, despise you, and will easily bear up under criticism, right? Because the great enemy of virtue is ridicule of the world. And so when you, you know, read medieval spiritual writers like uh, uh, Thomas Akempis or Richard Roll or Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Gertrude the Great, uh, Julian of Norwich, you, you quickly learn how important devotion to the passion of our Lord uh, was to them and how crucial they considered it uh, to our spiritual advancement and to cultivating a personal relationship with Christ. They're talking about interior conversion and then interior conversation, that your inner monologue becomes an inner dialogue where you are constantly in, in um, this spiritual dialogue with Christ. In my, in my opinion, there is no uh, private devotion that is more efficacious than meditating on our Lord's passion, and especially for bearing up under the ridicule of the world. Uh, I'll give the last word to say, Thomas Akempis. He said, When our Lord lived on earth, he was looked down on by people, and in the hour of his greatest need, he was left by his friends to bear insults and shame. I expect you can relate. He goes on, See how our king marches before us, and he will fight for us. Let us follow him courageously, fearing no perils. Let us be ready to die for him in battle, and let us not stain our honor by abandoning the way of the cross. The Sorrowful Mysteries, the Stations of the Cross, simple devotions suitable for any Catholic, the kind of ordinary devotion and prayer by following which no soul can be lost and that's no nonsense okay uh, I'm going to be out of town next week so they'll be running an encore I'll see you the week after that until then may God richly bless you and your family